0: Father, it is a privilege to be able to come to you at any time and communicate with you and to talk with you. Now, you know what we need before we ask, but it's good for us to come. Because you are our Father. And Jesus didn't say, if you pray. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or may thy name be honored. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're seeing a lot of people right now in positions of power and they want their kingdom to come. But we pray thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, our daily needs. You know what they are. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Help us to forgive those who have wronged us. To not be poisoned by bitterness. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That was a model prayer that Jesus gave to us. we are thankful that we are New Testament Christians. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that kind of access like we have. Oh, you heard their prayers and you heard their longings and the the cries out to you. You heard them. Of course you did. But in terms of entering into the Holy of Holies, only one man could do that one day a year. But because of what the Lord Jesus has done by offering Himself up for us in our place, He was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And there are no more sacrifices. And because we're in Christ and we've been adopted into your family through Him, we have access. As Abraham Lincoln's son had access to the Oval Office, as I remember reading in that biography, all those people were lined up outside to see the president. And that little seven-year-old boy just walked right past him and walked right in because you were his father. Abraham Lincoln was his father, and you're our father. So thank you that we can come to you, we can... Talk to you, we can cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. As we open the scriptures tonight, remind us of how great you are and how much you care for us, and that you've not left us to ourselves. We're not in this by ourselves. You've given us the Holy Spirit, you've given us the Word of God. Jesus is our shepherd. We are surrounded by believers that are committed to you. We're not alone. Grant us wisdom tonight for our circumstances as we open your book. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So please turn with me to John chapter 4. We're doing our study. We're calling it The Lion Roars which is interesting because in John, the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to numerous times as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's also known as the Lion of Judah. And the Gospel of John roars that Jesus is the Son of God. It, it roars that he is God. Tonight, as we make our way through the end of John four, I'm going to do something I've never done before. Driving over here, I was thinking about this tonight. I think the first time I ever did a serious Bible study, taught one, I was 21 years old, a group of college students, and uh, that was 50 years ago. I have taught a few times, then and now, and I'm going to do something tonight in this session that I have never done before. And what that is, is I'm going to give you two outlines. Now, this is going to be interesting because usually I have trouble getting through one outline, but I'm going to give you two outlines and I'm going to give you two titles, and we're just going to kind of see how this works. But as I've been mulling this over this week, I've kept going back and forth between two things, and I decided, well, let's just do both. So let me give you the first title and the first outline. We're going to be in John 4, beginning with 43, down to 54, which is the end of the chapter. So, the title, my first title is A Rich Politician with a Sick Son. The second title is A Rich Man Who Lost It All and Buried Two Wives. That is not in the text, but it's about a man named John Charles Ryle who died in 1900, but was a prominent evangelical Bible teacher in England in the 1800s, John Charles Ryle. Uh, A tremendous biblical scholar. Not as well known as some others of that day, but he was a giant of the faith, a giant. I actually have 12 volumes on one of my shelves that he wrote during his lifetime on scripture. He did a commentary on the Gospel of John. And his outline on this passage is so good and so applicable and so appropriate because of his life's story. I think you'll see how God uses hardship and adversity and setbacks and disappointment that mystifies us and stuns us and hurts us and crushes us for our good. Let's read this passage, and then I'll give you the three points of the first outline. Are you sufficiently confused already? I have that gift of confusion, spiritual gift of confusion. I don't think it's in Scripture, but apparently I have it from time to time. 43 of John 4. After the two days, what two days? Well, this is where context is important. In the previous paragraph, he was in Samaria, and because of the testimony of the woman at the well, in verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, the leaders, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. There's the context. Verse 43, after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, because that's where he was headed when he stopped off to talk to the woman at the well. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Uh, Throughout the book of John, his own people reject him. Now some believe in him, but the vast majority rejected him. But when he was in Samaria, The outcast embraced him with open arms. So he himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country, but he had it in Samaria. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. So prior in John, he was in Jerusalem ministering. They had these different feasts. Three times a year they would go to Jerusalem and They saw the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he was doing. And he's coming to Galilee, and they received him because they wanted to see more miracles, as we will see in just a minute. Let me give you the first point. Under the title, a rich politician and a sick son. Point one, Jesus is the master over nature. Verse 46, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee. I can still remember the first time I heard Howard Hendricks on a cassette tape teach the Bible. And I I was astonished. Master teacher. He taught a class at Dallas Seminary called Bible Study Methods for years and years and years. Decades, 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 decades. And the basic Bible study method is observation, interpretation, and application. I've told this before, but it's Worth repeating. So he'd have students in his class. And let's say he would take this section of Scripture that we're reading 43 to 54 in John 4. And in Bible study methods, he was talking about the importance of observing the text. So what do you do? You read the text, and then read it again. And then after you've read it again, read it again. And then read it again. As the great theologian Yogi Berra once said, you can see a lot by looking. <laughs> that was Yogi Berra. The guy was just switely, slightly on tilt, but what he said actually made great sense. You can see a lot by looking. That's the first principle of Bible study is observation. So don't just read it once because you're going to if you if you how many times do you read an email once and you're in a hurry and then you go back later and oh So the first principle of Bible study is observation. What does the text say? Our first point is that Jesus is the master over nature. Where do we get that from verse 46? Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And that's in John 2. And we looked at that. Not only did I read it this week, but I watched it on TV. So I've had a bunch of guys over the last months ask me if I had watched The Chosen. And I said, I hadn't. You'd, I think you'd really like it. And so after dinner, we were looking for something to watch that wouldn't um, make us depressed and in despair. And I said, hey, let's see if we can pull up The Chosen. And we've been watching it, um, I think we have watched it Four nights now. It's great. It's wonderful. It's so well done. It's worth watching. Therefore he came again to Canaan of Galilee where he made with the water wine. So when he made the water wine, what was he doing? John is very clear about his purpose in writing. He's extremely clear. So John 20, verse 30 Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, there are seven miracles, there are seven signs that are in the Gospel of John that John has pulled out, out of the thousands that Jesus did. But these, these seven, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name so when it says back in verse 46 of john four forty-six, then he came again to cana of galilee where he had made the water wine what he did by making the water wine was to prove to them that he was indeed the messiah the son of god so that they might believe in his name and have eternal life and he demonstrated that by showing that he is the master over nature. That's what happened in John 2, the first time he was at Cana. Now he's back at Cana. And verse 46, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Literally, there was a a king's man. There was a nobleman. This This particular man was a high-ranking official under Herod, who was mentioned throughout the Gospels, Herod the Tetrarch, very high-ranking. Therefore, he was a wealthy man. He was a man with status. He was a man with power. He had it all. He was a very, very successful man. There was a royal official, a king's man, whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now Capernaum was 20 miles away from Cana. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him. He was begging him to come down and heal his son. So if we're observing the text, when it says he was imploring him, he was begging him to come down and heal his son. Why does it say come down? Because he lived at Capernaum. Capernaum is right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. So no matter where you are in Israel, if you're going to the Sea of Galilee, you're going down if you're going to Jerusalem you're going up okay so this this gentleman lived in Capernaum his son is at the point of death and he's begging Jesus to come now what's interesting here is that as we read Jesus' response in 48, we're going to see that Jesus gives him a no, and then Jesus gives him a yes. So what's his request? His request is, come down, come with me, and heal my son. He's going to die. I'm absolutely desperate here. In 48, we see the response of Jesus and quite frankly, the response seems a little bit rude. It seems a little bit dismissive. It seems a little bit uh, to be lacking in sympathy because his little boy is dying. He please come with me, come down, heal my son. He's at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So Jesus kind of gets on the guy a little bit. At least it appears that he does. But as you look at verse 48, and once again, the first principle of Bible study is observation. So as you're looking at verse 48 and you're trying to figure out, well, why would Jesus respond to this guy? This guy's desperate, his little boy's dying, and Jesus is kind of hard on the guy. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Here's what you'll observe if you look closely. The you in the original language is plural. It's not singular, it's plural. He's not talking to the guy, he's talking to the guy's group. He's talking to the guy's peer group. He's talking that I know who you are, I know what group, what demographic you were a part of. And Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men, and he had already experienced that particular group just wanting, not wanting him, not wanting to believe in him, but they wanted to see more spectacular miracles. They wanted to see some incredible things. They wanted to see him do works of power. That that still happens today. People will run to those who say they are healers and they want to see amazing things done and they want to see this and they want to see that. Not necessarily that they're interested in the gospel. I've talked with people that have been to these certain meetings of faith healers and after you talk with them for a while, it's really clear they don't understand the gospel and they don't know Christ. This still happens today. Jesus did the miracles to show them who he was. Only God can do this. And today we live in a time where a lot of the things that are said and done, and it's not that God God can still heal. God can heal whenever he wants to. But sometimes God heals, and sometimes God doesn't heal. Paul had a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, and three times he asked the Lord to remove it, and the Lord said no. And Paul said, Well, then I'm running over here to this revival meeting because this guy will heal me. He says, That's your will, is that we always be healed. They, some of them might say that. That's not what Scripture says. God has the power, but He doesn't always grant the request because sometimes he has another purpose in mind than our physical well-being, a purpose that is more important than our physical well-being. He wants to do something else that long-term is more beneficial for us in our lives. It's amazing when you read great biographies of great saints of God throughout history who have walked to the Lord, it's interesting how many of them had afflictions physically that the Lord did not take away, just like Paul. Three times I asked the Lord to remove it from me, And the Lord said to him, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. What the Lord does at times in our lives is that he makes us weak so that we are aware of how much we need him. When we're weak, it drives us to him. When we are strong, we tend to go on our own Abilities. We tend to go on our own thinking. We tend to go on our own plans and objectives. And this is one of the things about prayer, is that when we pray and when we make requests in the Lord's prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Someone has said the prayer that is always answered is, Thy will be done. And Scripture also teaches us to pray, not my will, but thine be done. What happens is we get in desperate situations. This man, this rich man, this rich politician was desperate because his boy's dying. And he's got wealth and he's got power and he's got a lot of things that other people don't have but they aren't sufficient to do what needs to be done. And when we get desperate and we're hemmed in and we don't see any possible way out, and a lot of Christian people are dealing with this right now because the tyranny that's around us from the government and from bureaucracies and from those in medical places of power who actually aren't practicing physicians, who are ignoring the vice of... Physicians who actually practice, I was just reading about that today, and I thought I'd bring it up. It's just fascinating to me. They're just bureaucrats. They, they don't treat people, they don't treat patients, they don't see them, they don't write prescriptions. Yet they're dictating and ignoring the guys who are on the ground, dealing with patients. and doing. I mean, I just think that's kind of interesting, personally. And it's absolutely foolish. Now how did I get there? I have no idea, but I have to admit I feel a little better. (laughs) What we tend to do when we get hemmed in, and there are different ways of being hemmed in. If you don't acquiesce and violate your conscience, you might lose your job. And it's a conscience issue. One man can eat meat offered to idols, another man can't. Romans 14 plays into this, in a sense. What happens is we get hemmed into situations. And by the way, the Lord knows about these situations. And He knows that the consequences can be significant, and He knows that the consequences can be long-term, and they can threaten our well-being and the well-being of our family so what do we do whatever it might be it might be a health issue a job issue whatever a a marital issue a thousand different things when you're absolutely desperate like this man was desperate we make our request to the lord and we should make our request We, we should pour out our hearts before him but we should not get married to our preconceived notion of what god has to do in order to deliver us and that can happen the only way out that we can possibly see is if it happens like this and this and this and so we pray to that end lord i pray that you'll do this and this and this and sometimes and that's what this man was doing Lord, unless you come down and heal my son, I need you to come with me, leave Cana, and go with me to Capernaum. We'll go down right by my house, right next to the shore, and you can touch my son, and you can heal him. That was his perspective on the only way out of the desperate situation. And so Jesus gives him a no, and then Jesus gives him a yes. 49, after Jesus talks about the plural that that group of people that he's a part of, he's so desperate, he doesn't even respond to it. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And Jesus really wasn't addressing him. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. You can hear the desperation coming out. Now watch this. Jesus said to him, Go. Go. Your son lives. That answer contains a no to his request, and it it contains a yes. Jesus says to him, go, but in between the lines, that means I'm not going with you. I'm staying here. You go. You go back home. Your son lives. You see, the point is this. Jesus is the master over distance. I don't need to go 20 miles with you to f- to fulfill what you're really asking me to do. You want me to raise your son up and heal him. Yes, I'll do that. But you don't need me to go. You go. This is what the Lord says to us sometimes to our petitions and to our prayers in our desperation, and he understands our heart. He knows why we're desperate. But be careful of getting enamored with with your perception that if the Lord frustrates it, if the Lord doesn't grant it, that doesn't mean he's not going to act. It just means he's not going to do it the way you think he ought to do it. Isaiah 55.8, my ways are not your ways. This is the only way I can see out of this thing. Fine, makes sense. God gets that. But my ways, he says to us, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. And this is why we've made the statement over the years that there are three ways that God works in our lives. Number one, he works sovereignly in every detail of our lives. Secondly, he works strangely in every detail of our lives. Ephesians Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. You can't see any way out. Well, you know what? He may have another way to deliver you. So if he says no... Don't be stunned, don't be shocked. Just take a step back and say, not my will, but thine be done. He's going to teach this man a significant lesson, just like he taught at Cana, which was the first sign in the Gospel of John. This is going to be the second sign in the Gospel of John. And by the way, back there in John 4, Go to verse 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. What was the second sign? Well, verse 50. Jesus said to him, go. I'm not going. You go. Your son lives. Now watch this. The man argued the word of Jesus it's not what it says it says the man believed the word that jesus spoke to him and started off Uh, he believed that jesus was god he believed that he was the son of god and he believed that because he was god he was the master over distance that's the significance If he's God, he is the master over distance. And it doesn't matter if you're involved in a situation where someone in your company who's higher up and who you'd like to talk with personally, but you can't get access. You know, they're a thousand miles away. It, 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 if I could just meet them face-to-face. Well, you know, I like face-to-face meetings when they're critical. But sometimes you can't do it and you, you, can't, you can't overcome the distance. Well. Psalm 139 talks about this. Verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. The distance, if I go to heaven, that distance, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. Watch this. If I take the wings of the dawn... If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Go back to 9. If I take the wings of the dawn, you've been up in the morning, you've seen the sun come up, but before you see the sun, you see the the rays of light. Those rays of light are the wings of the dawn. Now, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you could take the wings of the dawn, put a saddle and a bridle on it, and write it, and pack a lunch and ride it for five hours, how far would you be at 186,000 miles per second? How far would you be in 12 hours? How far would you be in 24 hours? How far would you be in 30 days? How far would you be if you rode him forever at 186,000 miles per second? I will tell you this, whenever you got off, he would be there because he is the master over distance. And he controls situations that are a distance away from your circumstances and that you have no control over. See, these are things that are worth thinking about. These are things that are worth pondering when you're frustrated. These are things that um, bring peace to our hearts because when we bring these truths to our mind about who He is, it causes us to come out of unbelief to belief. Because what we're looking at are the facts. The facts, the truth about who He is and about His power over all things. Thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus is the master of precise timing. Jesus tells the man to go And what does the man do? Well, here's a concept. He obeys. If you want the blessing and favor of God in your life, as it says in John 2, as Mary said at that wedding, before Jesus did that miracle of turning water into wine, what did Mary say to them? Do whatever he tells you to do. That's called obedience. If you want the favor of God in your life, then obey him. If you want his discipline, then disobey. I found that to be true with my own father. My, I think my children found that to be true with me as well. And now it's sort of interesting to watch them pass that on to their children. Do whatever he says. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off on his 20-mile trek. 51, as he was now going down to Capernaum, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. His boy was living. His boy was fine. His boy was healed. 52, so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, 1 p.m. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. They all believed. When he told them what had occurred, what Jesus had said, and the precise time when Jesus said it. Well, that's exactly when he said, your son lives, your son's healed. You see, if he's the master over precise timing, and he's the master over distance, he's the Son of God. And we believe that he is the Son of God, which is the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. It's amazing how critical timing is, precise timing as we go through life. Hebrews 4.16. We find ourselves in situations where we're having trouble finding a way out. We're hemmed in by our circumstances. It's like a Red Sea experience. There are mountains on both sides. There's the sea in front of them, and there's Pharaoh's army coming, coming after them. God often puts his people in Red Sea experiences, and at the Red Sea, there was no way out. So then, what did the Lord do? He just made a way that was beyond anything they could ever ask or think. If you had a million years, you could not come up with the way that God will deliver you out of your circumstance. And if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you've seen him do this, and you're astonished. And you just shake your head, and what do you do? You praise Him, and you thank Him, and you give Him glory, and you give Him honor. He still does this. Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathized with the weakness of this man, this rich politician. But one who's been tempted at all things, as we are, yet without sin. Now watch this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. At the Red Sea, they had a little bit of a need. Where you are right now, you might have a little bit of a need. And if the Lord doesn't come through and grant you mercy and help, you're pretty much finished. You're pretty much dead in the water. But as Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. I love that phrase. (laughs) You're gonna go through life and there are gonna be some times when you think you're done, you think you're finished, you think you're over with, you think it's, it's, it's it, your best days are behind, it's, and maybe it's your own fault, maybe it's somebody else's fault. Doesn't matter. It's over. It's done. You're dead in the water. But resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. You could translate this, verse 16, let us draw near the confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace, watch this, for a well-timed help. Well, see, that's not a problem for the Lord because he's the, he's the master of precise timing. Manna for 40 years was precise timing. God never missed in 40 years. Had 2 million people to feed, He never missed. Here's outline number two. And here's the second title A Rich Man Who Lost It All and Buried Two Wives. Here is a book called Faithfulness and Holiness. Which is a biography that J.I. Packer wrote about J.C. Ryle, R Y L E, John Charles Ryle. J.C. Ryle was born in 1816 and he died in 1900. Uh, here is J.C. Ryle's commentary, volume one, on the Gospel of John. J.C. Ryle has a remarkable story. And I'll just sum it up for you as best I can. He was born into a family in England of great wealth. Great wealth. We're talking Downton Abbey. We're talking a thousand-acre estate with a great house, huge house, stables, servants, footmen, butlers. Just think, just think Downton Abbey. All that it took to maintain and run that great estate, that's what he was born into. He was of the gentry of the Victorian era when they had the different classes. He was at the very, very top. Great wealth. He was a great athlete, went to Oxford. He's still one of the greatest athletes in the history of Oxford to this day. Some 150, 170 years later. Phenomenal athlete, great athlete. He was a great scholar. One of those guys at the very, very top of his class. He was the whole package. He had a great future ahead of him. No doubt he would be a leader in Parliament. And at the age of 25, and Packer tells the story in the second chapter on Ryle's life. The first chapter, the title is A Great Man. The second chapter tells about his conversion to Christ towards his last year at Oxford And the second chapter is called A Great Sufferer. What happened to Ryle is that his father declared bankruptcy in 1841. Now, he was the oldest son. He was set for the rest of his life. He had a guaranteed income of 15,000 pounds per year, which back then was astonishing money. He was set for the rest of his life. He was born with not a silver spoon. He was born with a whole bunch of silver spoons. I mean, this guy was set. But his father, after he came to Christ, shortly thereafter, and he wrote an autobiography not to be published for the public. He wrote it for his children. Because he wanted his children to understand some of the story of how God worked in his life, because he was born into great wealth, yet he lost it all in one day. He said, in the biography, it would perhaps in the autobiography, it would perhaps be impossible to give any correct idea of the stunning violence of the blow which the ruin inflicted upon all. We got up one summer's morning with all the world before us as usual and went to bed that same night completely and entirely ruined. The immediate consequences were bitter and painful in the extreme and humiliating to the utmost degree. The creditors naturally, rightly, and justly seized everything and we left with nothing but our own personal property and our own clothes. Our household was Of course, immediately broken up, men, servants, butler, under butler, footman, coachman, groom, housekeeper, housemaids, etc., etc. Hinberry, the thousand-acre family home since 1837, which Ryle loved, was sold, and Ryle himself stayed on for the most trying and miserable six weeks I've ever had in my life to help his father wind up his affairs. He never got over this. Later, he says he thought about it every day of his life. Now, he got over it in terms of understanding the plan of God and the will of God, but it was so deep. It was such a wound. He says, the plain fact was that there was no one of the family whom it touched more than it did me. I, the oldest son, 25, all the world before me, lost everything. If I had not been a Christian at that time, I do not know if I should not have committed suicide. For myself, I can only say that the wound it inflicted in me, in both body and mind, was nearly mortal. I don't think there's been a single day in my life for 32 years that I have not remembered the courage, draining humiliation of having to leave that Hinbury home. Yet taking a moral and spiritual view of it, I have not the least doubt it was all for the best. If my father's, affair has, if my father's affairs had prospered and I had never been ruined, my life, of course, would have been very different. I should probably have gone into Parliament very soon, I should never have been a clergyman, never have preached, written a tract or a book. Perhaps I might have made shipwreck in spiritual things. Next page, he says this, I never felt before. Because when he lost everything, you gotta remember again the Victorian age and that whole class system that was in England, It was very delineated, it was very clear, and you didn't cross lines in the different classes. He not only lost wealth, but he lost his class. And he was utterly cast out and cast away. And his Oxford network and his good old boy network and all of the, it was all over, it was all gone. He was an untouchable. I never felt before what a miserable thing it is for a man to be first rich and then poor. Those only who have been rich till they were 25 and then become poor can comprehend what endless mortification your circumstances entail upon you. He winds up going in ministry because it's the only job that's available to him. Back then... He just didn't go do or pursue something. Many went into the ministry who were not believers in Christ. He was a believer. And a small, tiny, little church as an assistant pastor in a small, little farming community with pretty much poor people opened up and he took it. And that was his life from there on out. Then he gets married, he had a promotion finally, got enough money where he could support a wife, he got married, she had some children, she immediately got sick. For years and years she was sick, he was caring for her, caring for the children, and then she dies. He grieves and grieves. Several years later, he meets another godly woman, he marries her, they have children, now he's got five kids, that wife gets sick, he's nursing her, raising the kids by himself and then she dies what's that book that is so popular your best life now I need to read that book you know who needed to read that book was JC Ryle he would have laughed at that book you know who else would have laughed at that book Job You know who else would have laughed at that book? The Apostle Paul. I'll tell you who else would laugh at that book. Any Christian that is familiar with the New Testament. Because your best life is never going to be now. Your best life is in the next life. But the Lord had a plan for Ryle. And God began to raise him up, gave him a third wife who survived his death. And then the Lord began to use him. And he was made the Bishop of Liverpool. Liverpool was an industrial city. Uh, he, he was a Bible-believing Anglican, and not all Anglicans were Bible-believing. That's t- true today. There's a remnant that are. He was, he was a warrior for Christ. And Liverpool was blue-collar, it was low-income people, it was an industrial town, a lot of poor people, and Benjamin Disraeli appointed him to be the bishop of Liverpool. And those people loved him. And you know why they loved him? They loved to hear him preach. Because he related to them. He understood them. He knew what was in their heart Because you see, he who was born into wealth, he knew what it was to be poor. He knew what it was to have sickness in the home. He knew what it was to try to juggle the responsibilities of life until you can't even think straight. And churches were planted and small groups and ministries were started and he was there 20 years and had a phenomenal impact through his preaching and through his study of the Word. So when he comes to the story of this rich politician with a sick son, he makes four points. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to see how absolutely on target they are because of what God did in his life. He says, four great lessons stand out boldly on the face of this passage. We learn, number one, firstly, the rich have afflictions as well as the poor. The rich have afflictions as well as the poor. And then he, I'll read his paragraph. We read of a noble man in deep anxiety because his son was sick. We need not doubt that every means of restoration was used that money could procure But money is not almighty. The sickness increased, and the nobleman's son lay at the point of death. The lesson is one which needs to be constantly impressed on the minds of men. There is no more common or more mischievous error than to suppose that the rich have no cares. The rich are as liable to sickness as the poor, and have a hundred anxieties beside of which the poor know nothing at all. How would he know that the rich have a hundred anxieties that the poor would know nothing about? Because he'd been born rich. He understood the rich. He'd been rich. He says, silks and satins often cover heavy hearts. The dwellers in palaces often sleep more uneasily than the dwellers in their cottages. Gold and silver can lift no man beyond the reach of trouble they may shut out debt and rags, but they cannot, cannot shut out care, disease, and death. You ever ask the question, Lord, why am I going through this? Probably because he's got something in mind for you to do down the road. And he's simply equipping you and getting ready. He says, secondly, we learn from this passage that sickness and death come to the young as well as to the old. Sickness and death come to the young as well as to the old. He's writing this in the 1800s. And he says, the, the lesson is one which we are all slow to learn. We are apt to shut our eyes to plain facts and to speak and act as if young people, as a matter of course, never died when young. Now listen to this. And yet the gravestones in every churchyard would tell us that few people out of a hundred Ever lived to be 50 years old well we're shocked if someone doesn't live to be 50 because it was a different time we're, we're shocked if a child dies John Owen the great Puritan pastor as I recall had 12 children he buried 11 out of the 12 and then eventually buried the daughter who lived the oldest, so he buried all 12. He goes on and says, he that is wise will never reckon confidently on a long life. We just don't know. Thirdly, he says, we learn from this passage, what benefits, what benefits? We all like benefits, right? What's the benefit package? Or gosh, I'm being put in a situation where I might lose my benefit." Benefits are a big deal. Thirdly, we learn from this passage, what benefits affliction can confer on the soul? What benefits affliction can confer on the soul? We read that anxiety about a son led the nobleman to Christ in order to help in time of need. Watch this. Once brought into Christ's company, he learned a lesson of priceless value. In the end, he believed in his whole house. All this, be it remembered, hinged upon the son's sickness. It all was precipitated, that he believed, that his whole household believed. How did that begin? His son got sick to the point of death. You see, the Lord is master over all circumstances. If the nobleman's son had never been ill, his father might have lived and died in his sins. Then he says this, affliction. And what's your affliction right now? Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin in the world, which would have otherwise have perished forever. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater blessing. Sanctified disease. You see, if it leads you to Christ and to being forgiven. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Thousands at the last day will testify with David and the noble man in John 4 when David said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Psalm 119, 4. We learn lastly from this passage that Christ... Word is as good as Christ's presence. We read that Jesus did not come down to Capernaum to see the sick young man, but only spoke the word, Your Son lives. Almighty power went with that little sentence. The very hour, that very hour, the patient began to mend. Christ only spoke and the cure was done. Christ only commanded and the deadly disease stood last. The sinner who has truly reposed his soul on the word of the Lord Jesus is safe to all eternity. He could not be safer if he saw the book of life and his own name written in it. I love that. What he's saying is, you couldn't be any more safe if you were to see your name written in the Lamb's book of life right now. You're secure in Christ. If Jesus had sa- has said... He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, and our hearts can testify, I have come to him. We need not doubt that we are saved. In the things of this world, we say, watch this, in the things of this world, we say that seeing is believing. But in the things of the gospel, believing is as good as seeing. If Jesus, who is God, says it, believe it. Let's pray. So Father, here we are. Every man facing challenges, decisions that have significant consequences. Many feeling hemmed in, being herded along a path that is Ignoring the liberties that have been granted in this country from the beginning. But our trust is in you. David said, my times are in your hand. He said, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. We trust you. We trust your promises. As we go home tonight, enable us to rest because we believe in you and that you are the master over everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.